T-Mobile has invested billions to light up America's largest 5G network from big cities to small towns, including right here in yours. And great coverage is just the beginning. Right now, families and small businesses can save up to 20% versus AT&T and Verizon when they switch. Visit your local T-Mobile store today. Plan savings with three lines of T-Mobile essentials versus comparable available plans. Plan features and taxes and fees may vary. Welcome to KCBS In-Depth, a discussion of one of the topics making news this week. This is KCBS In-Depth. Fellowship, calls for connecting around our common civic purpose. We're gathering in this way to challenge each other, to reflect with each other, and by being here... If you squinted with one eye, you could almost convince yourself that this here is some kind of religious gathering. But you'd only be half right. What's actually going on is something called a Civic Saturday. We are choosing not to succumb to the moral cynicism that has taken a hold of civic life. We're declaring that there can be another way. It's a community event that aims to draw people together, not around shared religious conviction, but instead around a common faith that civic engagement can make our communities and our country better. And so we are building that here together, and we thank you so much for being here and building that with us. Yes. I'm Keith Menconi. This is In Depth, and this week on the program, hot on the heels of the 4th of July, we're going to be getting to know the work of one group of people responding to these fractured times we live in by searching for those communal bonds that link to something deeper in American life than political party or media talking points. That group is the Seattle-based nonprofit Citizen University. And for the last few years, they've been organizing Civic Saturday events in dozens of cities around the country. These community gatherings do follow the form of a religious gathering, but with a few tweaks. Instead of hymns, they're singing folk songs. Instead of scripture, they're reading great works from American history. This is from Ella Baker, as quoted in Moving the Mountain. This is from Let Us Now Praise Famous Men by James Aggie. So this is the Equal Rights Amendment to the United States Constitution. And they do have a sermon, but the themes of that sermon are ones of liberty, equal justice, American democracy, and the role each of us can play in it. If we do our jobs right, we will spark a great civic awakening all across this land. A renewal of people power and replenishment of civic character. And all that just to give a taste of what Civic Saturdays are all about. Now, for the rest of the show, we're going to be speaking with one of the group's masterminds who we actually heard speaking just a second ago. That is Eric Liu. He is the co-founder and CEO of Citizen University. His new book draws together many of the Civic Saturday sermons he's delivered himself over the past few years. It's called Become America, Civic Sermons on Love, Responsibility, and Democracy. Now here is my conversation with Eric Liu. Thank you so much. Eric Liu, thanks so much for joining us today. Keith, it's great to be with you. So I think a good place to start this conversation is where Civic Saturdays all started. My understanding is that the first one uh, was held shortly after the 2016 presidential election. Tell me a little bit about where that came from. Uh, yeah, so we, um, our team had been contemplating doing something like Civic Saturdays. Uh, uh, your team, meaning Civic University, yes. Uh, but we had not wanted to start those till sometime early in 2017. It was uh, on our uh, uh, on our kind of drawing board. Uh, and uh, my wife, uh, Janae Kane, who's the co-founder of Citizen University, she'd really been sketching out this idea. 
but as the presidential campaign uh, reached its very bitter end and then its somewhat shocking conclusion, um, there was so much anger and angst in the air. There was so much agitation. And we realized, uh, you know, whether you like the election result or not, and most people, um, you know, in Seattle where we're based uh, did not like the result, but uh, whether you liked it or not, uh, it had laid bare this incredible dehumanizing uh, divisiveness uh, in our political culture and this need for some kind of reckoning and healing. And uh, and so we looked at each other and we said, we can't wait till um, early 2017, even though our plans aren't really baked. We've just got to start doing a Civic Saturday now. And we decided that we would hold the first one um, four days after the election. And uh, we scrambled, we called up uh, um, our flagship uh, local independent bookstore here in Seattle, Elliott Bay Books, and asked if they had a room available. They did their basement reading room. And uh, we sent out emails and uh, invited people. And we thought, you know, on, on such short notice, it'd be great if a few dozen people came. And then um, when that morning arrived, uh, four days later, um, over 220 people uh, crammed themselves into this basement reading room because there was just such a hunger and a need for a collective presence, for some kind of shared meaning making, uh, and for people to begin to, again, not in the isolation of their home or their social media feed, uh, to figure out what do we do now? How, how do we go forward as a community as a, and as a country? Right. And uh, we can dive a little bit deeper into the work that you're doing in, in just a minute. But to give our listeners, I, I suppose, a window into your thinking in all this uh, and perhaps motivation here as well, I, I want to dwell on a quote that I heard from you at a TED Talk that you delivered, uh, because I think it really gets to the heart of this project. You said, Democratic hope requires faith not in a strong man or a savior, but in each other. Tell our listeners a little bit what you meant by that. Yeah, you know, the, the whole idea of Civic Saturdays, these gatherings that uh, we've been organizing around the country that are essentially a civic analog uh, to a faith gathering. It's not church, it's not synagogue or mosque, but it is about what we call civic religion. Uh, this idea that in American life, uh, what binds us together uh, is a creed, a set of ideals. And the question is, uh, how do we actually live up to that? And how do we together... Uh, make sense of what that creed calls us to be uh, doing. And uh, we've been doing this work this way uh, because we recognize that politics and civic life is not just a mechanical uh, policy engineering, social engineering exercise. It is fundamentally about faith and hope. And the faith that I'm speaking about is not uh, faith in a deity. It it is faith in your neighbors. It is faith uh, that, that we as a community, as in a collective uh, can, can actually hold this thing together. When, when you stop and think about it, uh, democracy is a little bit of a gamble and a little bit of a miracle, uh, this idea that we will all agree to be able to govern ourselves, that we will all agree that the rule of law will actually mean something, that we'll all agree that even when we don't like the result uh, of an election or a given policy outcome, uh, that we'll keep staying in the game because it's a game of infinite repeat play, not scorched earth, winner take all. Um, and that faith uh, can't be blind faith. It has to be earned faith. And um, and and in our view, and in my view in particular, um, you know, democratic hope. What I mean by that phrase is this idea that um, you know, even in the darkest of times, even in a period like today where there is so much bitterness and division and dehumanization in civic life, uh, I actually remain net hopeful. And, and I distinguish hope from optimism. I, I don't say that I'm optimistic about our prospects as a society, because optimism, in my mind, is for spectators. But hope, hope implies agency. Hope says, I have a hand 
in the outcome. And so when I say that democratic hope requires faith not in a strong man or some charismatic savior, but in each other, it means hope is not like being a spectator and saying, oh gosh, that president, he sure is entertaining. Or, oh gosh, I'm so glad that president rode in like a knight on a white horse um, to save us all. Uh, democratic hope means, you know what? I've decided I got to show up and start contributing and participating. And I actually think that when I do that, the people around me, my family, my friends, neighbors, strangers around me, my coworkers, I actually have some faith that they're going to do the same. Uh, and that kind of hope, uh, you know, gets earned and demonstrated only by us making a choice to show up. You mentioned faith a second ago. I think that that's a good way to get into the form that these Civic Saturdays are taking because they do take the form of a religious gathering, although they are not religious in nature. Expand on that a little bit, the role of faith and the role of this, I guess, religious formulation that you are using to bring people together for these gatherings. Yeah, we. the reason why we uh, designed uh, Civic Saturdays uh, to, to mimic the arc of a faith gathering is, uh, is twofold. Number one, uh, as I said just a moment ago, uh, we really do believe that democracy is a faith-fueled activity. It is about belief, uh, and it is about um, recognizing that democracy works only when enough of us believe democracy works. And that is actually kind of a, it's not a tautology. That's actually an indication of just how fragile uh, and miraculous the legitimacy of any kind of free self-governing system is. And and you realize how fragile that legitimacy is when, when it starts to get corroded, uh, um, whether by, uh, you know, a leader who disregards norms uh, or by a populace that stops showing up and participating and taking responsibility. Um, so that's the first reason we really emphasize this frame of democratic faith and, um, and what Tocqueville and, and Lincoln called uh, civic or political religion. Uh, but the second reason why we use this frame, Keith, is that, you know, over the millennia, organized um, godly religious traditions uh, have figured something out deep and profound about how and why people gather to make meaning, to seek purpose, uh, to uh, reckon with the moral and ethical challenges of the moment and to situate themselves in some continuous line uh, of history uh, and, and kind of universal timeless obligations. Uh, and so when you come to a Civic Saturday, um, you know, it feels in the most welcoming and, and ecumenical way like a faith gathering. We, we sing together. We, we turn to the strangers next to us and are invited to talk about a common question or a prompt. Um, there are readings of texts that you might think of as civic scripture, texts from the American tradition, whether famous texts like the Gettysburg Address or the Preamble to the Constitution, or less well-known texts by uh, different figures who have been more in the margins of uh, American cultural and political history. And then following those readings of texts of civic scripture, um, the real centerpiece is a civic sermon um, that is really, again, trying to connect the dots between past and present, between the ethical challenges of the moment and the actions that uh, uh, we're taking or the omissions that we are making. Um, and then after the sermon, uh, people organize in, in what we call civic circles uh, uh, to talk not only about what they've heard that day and, uh, and what, what they've been moved to think and to feel, but then to convert that, that reflection into action uh, and to consider, okay, here where we live, uh, whether that's in Seattle where we started these or in one of the many dozens of communities around the United States now where Civic Saturdays have spread, 
what do we do where we live to show up to actually apply some of these ideals, uh, to actually push our country uh, to live up to the promise of equal justice under law? How does that actually play out um, in Detroit or in Athens, Tennessee, or in Honolulu, uh, or in Indianapolis or Portland, Maine, whatever it might be? Um, and our belief fundamentally is that when you invite people uh, into a space to make that kind of meaning together, to wrestle with uh, what our shared obligations are to, to govern ourselves, to, to sustain a healthy uh, uh, community, um, people respond to the invitation. People don't realize actually how much they've been craving the invitation because we live in such a fragmented, isolating, lonely time uh, where people have just gotten kind of desensitized and habituated to just being on their own uh, and raging at the screen. Um, and maybe, you know, talking to someone in their family or someone close, but not otherwise being in public to, uh, to try to uh, remind themselves that they're part of something greater than themselves. And when you extend that invitation, people show up. And we found that uh, not only in Seattle, where we began Civic Saturdays, but all around the United States. Yeah, that's kind of the next question that I wanted to ask you, because you're right. It is, it's not just a divided time. It's a very isolated time. The the reality at this point is if somebody goes up and knocks on your door without calling ahead of time, you freak out. You feel like it's a home invasion just because we yeah. are so we have these bubbles around us all the time. I wonder if that has made it difficult in some way to get people to go a- across that barrier to when they're actually confronted. Here's a stranger. Here's somebody in my community to talk to. Are people even able to do that in 2019 anymore? You know, I think people are able to do that. I mean, as isolating and fragmented and um, atomized as our society has become, we are still human beings. And human beings are social animals who crave connection and meaning making uh, with others. And, uh, and so it may take a little while to scrape past the, uh, the layers of armor you've built up psychologically to uh, keep you from having to make eye contact, to keep you from having to actually return a gesture of kindness to keep you from uh, from actually making yourself vulnerable to uh, answering or asking a question of someone you just met. Um, but again, why we've created this um, ritual, and I think that that word is really important here. Um, it, you know, Civic Saturdays are not just a meeting. Uh, they're not just an event. Uh, they're not just a, you know, a, a civic engagement opportunity. Uh, they are a shared ritual um, with a form and a structure Um, and with uh, song and poetry and art in a way that activates our full humanity, not just our rational brain or not just our uh, our little fear engines. Um, And when you get invited into a space like that uh, with a structure um, that even if you never were raised uh, uh, in any religious tradition, I I wasn't personally, um, you know, the echoes of these beats uh, of singing together, of hearing texts, of interpreting those texts, of hearing a sermon, of discussing that sermon, um, the, there, there's a deep universality uh, to that kind of experience, and people will drop their armor. Uh, we have found it time and time again um, that uh, when given the invitation, people will respond. And uh, does that mean they'll go immediately to the most sensitive, vulnerable uh, point of personal identity or, or, or the hottest button issue of, uh, of social division? No. Uh, but our goal uh, in doing Civic Saturdays is to build what we call bonds of trust and affection. You don't have to find consensus. You know, to, to, you may disagree um, on any number of issues or in worldview, and that's not just left right. It may be millennials versus Gen Xers. It may be urban folks versus rural folks. It may be first in their family to go to college to people who are, 
deeply privileged to be multi-generational uh, college educated. There are all these different lines of division uh, that, can, that can separate us. And, um, and our aim is to foster these bonds of trust and affection across those lines of division so that we have a shot at rekindling uh, our capacity for democracy. Uh, and democracy does not mean unanimity. It does not mean consensus. Uh, in our work, we're not going for an end to argument. Uh, I, I don't. I'm not. I don't think that the civic life needs fewer arguments. We just need less stupid arguments. We need less dehumanizing arguments. We need a, a capacity to humanize each other first before we get to the things that we might disagree on. Um, and, uh, and and when you invite people in and you ask them universal human questions like who are you responsible for? Or name a time in your life when you realized you needed help, but you didn't know how to ask for it. I don't care who you are. I don't care what your background is or what your politics are. Everyone has an answer to questions like that. Um, and when you crack that open, uh, people find a new way to connect that both precedes and then over time might supersede um, some of their more obvious uh, demographic and political divisions. Mm, a lot to talk about there. Real quick, though, I want to remind any listeners who may just be joining us, uh, you're listening to KCBS In-Depth, our weekly deep dive into some of the major trends and stories shaping life here in the Bay Area. This week, our guest is Eric Liu. He is the co-founder and CEO of Citizen University, and his new book is Become America, Civic Sermons on Love, Responsibility, and Democracy. Uh, you were talking about some of the divisions in our society a moment ago, and one of the things that I, I think is a striking and troubling feature of the times that we live in is it has become harder and harder to find those shared values within our society that we can all agree on. Whether you're a Trump supporter or, a, or, or not a Trump supporter, looking across that divide, I think it can be pretty easy to feel like we really have nothing in common between one another. There is no fundamental civic values that we share upon which we can build some kind of common understanding and common discourse. It, what, what are the fundamental values that you appeal to when you try to bring groups of people with different political values together? Well, actually, you know, the, the subtitle of, uh, of my new book, Become America, uh, captures uh, some of the core core values that uh, that we've emphasized. The subtitle is, as you said, "Civic Sermons on Love, Responsibility, and Democracy." Um, and so, whether you are red or blue, whether you are young or old, whether you are um, African American or Asian American or white, um, you know, the question of what does it mean to love in civic life? What does it mean to love your neighbor? What does it mean to love your enemies? What does it mean to love uh, yourself, and what are the what is the cost or the price of each of these forms uh, of love? Uh, what does it mean to love your country uh, in a moment like this? Um, you know, to, to us, um, again, by raising the question, by asking people to reckon with the meaning um, and the obligations of civic love, um, we're not saying that there is a single correct answer to those questions. Um, in, in many ways. You know, what it means to be American is to be perpetually arguing over what it means to be American. Uh, and that's a great thing. We are a creedal nation. We are not a nation bound together by a single genetic bloodline. We are not a nation bound together by a single um, shared history on a piece of turf uh, or territory. Um, we are a nation that's bound together by a set of ideals, by, by this creed. Uh, and you can find some of that creed and some of those values in our founding documents. Uh, but mainly what you find and where you find those values 
um, is in that second word in the subtitle of, of Become America, which is responsibility. You know, whether you're talking about uh, the language of the Declaration of Independence, um, or you're talking about the I Have a Dream speech, uh, or you're talking about Reagan's speech at the uh, Berlin Wall telling Gorbachev to tear down that wall, um, you're talking about the idea that freedom is responsibility, that to be free is not to simply remove all encumbrance and remove all restrictions on you, to, but to be free truly in any sustained way is to take responsibility for yourself and for the state of affairs around you. That's the only way there's any kind of freedom that's worth having and worth sustaining. Um, and that value, um, again, people can argue over, well, what is the meaning of that? And how much responsibility do we have for our neighbors, for our for strangers, for the newcomer, for the refugee? Um, and <clears throat> again, uh, in our work at Citizen University, we're not trying to put forward a single, quote, correct answer, but we are trying to put forward the idea that there is no freedom without a taking of responsibility. Yeah, and you, I mean, you're talking a lot about personal responsibility and, and ways that we should engage personally in that project and try to make things better. It's hard for me as an individual citizen to imagine my showing up to, I don't know, pick up trash or something on a Saturday or or meeting with my uh, fellow citizens. It's hard for me to imagine how that aggregates up into something that actually makes a meaningful change on the scales that you're talking about. Tell me a little bit about what this looks like in practice when people really are taking that responsibility more seriously and engaging with these virtues and these values in a more serious way. Oh, I think the key key words you just used, Keith, is it's hard to imagine because this is a problem of imagination right now. This is a problem of sight and how we see. Because in point of fact, what you described is absolutely how civic renewal happens. It is absolutely how social change happens. And that is by ones and twos and fives and tens, um, people bottom up deciding, I'm gonna start taking responsibility. I'm gonna start showing up. I mean, maybe it's picking up trash in my neighborhood. Maybe it's actually uh, humanizing the homeless people uh, in, in my in my town uh, and actually figuring out what I and a few others can do to help hold up my corner of that problem. Um, maybe it's um, us, um, you know, a group of us in our church or in our PTA group and our soccer team, uh, whatever it might be, saying, you know what, I've been seeing these headlines uh, about these migrant concentration camps at the border, and it's just not okay. And, and we've got to start doing something. We've got to actually get our church or our school or whatever it might be, our workplace, uh, to do our part, uh, to send in supplies to help, uh, to lobby our members of Congress to uh, to, to apply more pressure, uh, to organize uh, public rallies uh, where we're going to make our voices heard uh, and make it clear that no that we don't accept this as a new normal uh, in the United States in the 21st century. W whatever it might be, um, whether it's local or national, it is only uh, by individuals uh, choosing uh, to take action. Uh, choosing to take responsibility and then banding together uh, first in twos and threes and fives, and then maybe over time on some issues up to thousands or hundreds of thousands or millions, but maybe not. Maybe it just stays at a very local human scale. Either way, that is how change happens. And um, and so the key phrase that you use is, it's hard to imagine that that's how change happens. And my answer to that is, imagine it. Recognize the ways in which power actually works in society. And, and on any given issue, whether it's gentrification in your city, uh, whether it is uh, the fact that your small town is rigged by a small group of cronies uh, who are cutting everybody else out of power, uh, whether it is the deep persistence of racial segregation or police brutality 
uh, in your community, uh, whatever the issue might be, um, it begins with us imagining and recognizing um, that it is wholly possible for us to generate brand new power out of thin air through the magic act of organizing. When we organize in twos, fives, tens, hundreds, and beyond, we do change the equation of power. Um, and Americans over the last half century have forgotten that. And so our imaginations have narrowed. Our conception of what is possible has shrunk. Um, and so I really appreciate, Keith, that you focus on this idea that this is an imagination issue first. All right. Well, we are running a little bit short on time. But before we go, uh, you're obviously trying to grow this thing. Uh, let's talk a little bit about how you're trying to do that. Uh, I understand that you're helping people start their own Civic Saturdays through an institution you've started called Civic Seminaries. Uh, what are those? That's right. Yeah. So to extend this metaphor of American civic religion, um, you know, when, once we started doing Civic Saturdays in Seattle, people around the country started asking me and, and, and our team, uh, hey, would you bring a Civic Saturday to our town? And over the last year and a half, we have obliged um, as much as we are physically possible. We've gone to you know, places all over the United States, Nashville, Atlanta, um, uh, Chicago, Los Angeles, uh, Portland, Maine, Portland, Oregon, all these different places to lead Civic Saturdays. Uh, but that's not scalable. And, and what we decided we needed to do instead of having me and my team run around uh, doing this was to create a Civic Seminary in which we could train catalytic leaders uh, from communities all around the United States uh, to lead their own Civic Saturdays. And so Civic Seminary uh, happens uh, three or four times a year. Uh, we bring folks from around the United States to our headquarters in Seattle for, uh, for a week of training um, that is both about the nuts and bolts of how do you run a gathering like a Civic Saturday? How do you hold the space? How do you, um, uh, you know, kind of uh, supply the secret sauce of this civic ritual? Um, and create that kind of magical spirit of welcoming and invitation, uh, but also to train people um, in the precepts and the idea of, uh, of this notion uh, of having a moral frame uh, and this civic religious um, uh, approach to what it means to live like a citizen, what it means to show up uh, uh, in civic life and to recognize that a strong democracy requires strong citizens. So how do we make strong citizens? How do we teach that out of the classroom uh, and in everyday life? Um, and so um, Civic Seminary has been going for the last uh, uh, year and a quarter now, and uh, we're just about to have our uh, next cohort of people from all around the United States come. Um, and so um, anybody who's listening uh, and is interested, uh, just go to our website, citizenuniversity.us. All right. Well, I did notice there are, are, are not too many. Uh, I couldn't find too many examples of uh, Civic Saturdays or, or uh, gatherings related to your work uh, in Northern California. So perhaps today's conversation can be something of a seed uh, for future work in that regard. We uh, would love that. We actually, in our cohort, next cohort of civic seminarians who are coming in a couple of weeks to Seattle, uh, we have a couple people from the Bay Area, from Oakland and, uh, uh, and, and Berkeley. But uh, if you're listening and this intrigues you, uh, uh, sign up and join us and, uh, and help us uh, uh, spread this approach to, to building community and building these bonds of, uh, of trust and affection and civic love. All right. Food for thought for everyone out there. We have been speaking today with Eric Liu. He is once again the co-founder and CEO of Citizen University. His new book, which ties together many of the civic sermons that he's given over the past couple of years, is called Become America, Civic Sermons on Love, Responsibility, and Democracy. Eric Liu, thanks so much for joining us. Keith, thank you. It's been a great conversation. 
You've been listening to KCBS In-Depth. Remember, you can find past editions of the program online at kcbsradio.com or wherever you get your podcasts. Thanks for listening for KCBS and In-Depth. I'm Keith Manconi, and I'll see you next time. You've just heard KCBS In-Depth, a news interview program for all news 740 and FM 106.9 KCBS. We really need new phones. T-Mobile will cover the cost of four amazing new iPhone 15s. And each line is only $25 a month. New iPhone 15s? It's better over here. Only at T-Mobile get four iPhone 15s on us and four lines for $25 per line per month with eligible trade-in when you switch. Minimum of four lines for $25 per line per month with auto-pay discount using debit or bank account. $5 more per line without auto-pay, plus taxes and fees. Phone fee at 24 monthly bill credits for all well qualified customers. Contact us before canceling account to continue bill credits or credit stop and balance on required finance agreement due. $35 per line connection charge applies. See T-Mobile.com. 